Listen, I'm I'm recording now, and I just want to show you something. Yeah, yeah. So, something. Was left alone. That was how she liked it. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! This scene was so cool to me when I was a kid. Like she, she's. It was actually kind of a mystery to me when I was a kid how pancakes were made, and the idea of a kid making them was so empowering. <laughs> and this is the, the part of the movie when it's like Matilda's not old enough yet to be played by Mara Wilson. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pre-Mara Wilson Matilda. I was fascinated by how perfect the pancakes she made were. Like, I always dreamed of having pancakes that were that, you know, round and golden. Anyway, welcome to Mike. Yeah. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage as always. We're hey, talking everyone. about the pancake scene from 1996's Matilda, directed by Danny DeVito it, earlier today. It, it somehow it came up while we were watching this week's movie, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it's because that song by the band. Well, okay, how it actually happened was Will is drinking a Merlot tonight, uh, called Rugged Roots. I misread it as Rusted Root, which. Hardcore Matilda heads will know is the, <laughs> is the name of the band that did that that song that, that you know is in the famous pancake making scene of Matilda, which is probably one of I want to say two scenes in Matilda that I still remember. All these it's been it's been over twenty years since it's, I've seen Matilda. It's been a while for me, but I watched a lot of that movie when I was a, a and kid. The reason I remember it is because that song was such an earworm. Yeah. Oh my god! And I I really don't like the they song. they were like uh, that band was sort of like a. I don't actually know where they're from, but they were sort of like alpaca wearing, like pan flute playing sort of guys. Kind of hipster, um, right, you know, right. American apparel music. <laughs> but, twee but, stuff. Right, but so twee is where I was going to go next because I think the reason that we, we thought of that scene, we thought of the song, and then it just kept coming up like as we were watching the movie, kind of as we were hanging out. You know, it fits into the Michael and us aesthetic really well because <laughs> there's just something about the tone of it that's like, you've already said it, the, the tweeness of it is like so much of what we see in a lot of the movies we watch. And this week's movie, which we'll get to, was no different. There's something about that music that makes me think of like when we were coming up, when we were young up and comers, like in our early 20s. You remember, you remember when we were at University of Toronto and like the Annex hipsters were all around? Like that was like that's the kind of music I can imagine like playing <laughs> in the background when the Annex hipsters were there. Like if you walked into uh, you know Futures or something like yeah. as of you know like I don't know in 2008 or something and and you saw the like the really cool 30 somethings hanging out the one who were like wow like they've seen like every Wes Anderson movie like that's how cool they are. There's a, there was a particular Toronto hipster aesthetic in the 2000s that was very much centered around like oh we're downtown we're progressive and we ride bikes yeah i write i write a column for uh iweekly about uh top brunch places that you can ride your bike to (laughs) like if i could sum up what the toronto downtown aesthetic was it was that and i could just hear that matilda Matilda everywhere like I could, serenading like you. yeah like like there are just so many people who are like Toronto Twitter famous in the in the late 2000s early 2010s we, we, we had like, the, the Rob Ford era Twitter conversation right did, I don't know if we ever had oh that man let, you know what let's it. just get into okay it right this now, is Canadian so. content folks yeah. <laughs> when I think when we were younger you know our horizons were limited at the time what we really dreamed of being in the early 2010s was like can we be Toronto Twitter famous you know <laughs> well I okay I'll, I won't 
don't put words in your mouth, but I mean, the way I would rephrase that uh, was that was the horizons of fame as we kind of knew them then. It's like mm. we there were these characters that had like 7,000 Twitter or less even sometimes that were just just huge in the kind of like 2010, 2011 Toronto scene. I'm going to name one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's Morgan Baskin. Right. Morgan Baskin was a high school student who ran for mayor against Rob Ford. Rob Ford was already mayor, and then he, because of cancer, he was replaced on the ballot by his brother, Doug. So Morgan Baskin was like this kid running for mayor mm-hmm. who was like... Well, it was, pretty, it was pretty ballsy what she did. I mean, well, good yeah. for her because all the mayoral candidates all did 200 debates mm-hmm. in 2014 because... The way that the election works in Toronto, the mayoral election is any organization, any organization is like, we would like to hold a mayoral debate on um, the climate or about mm-hmm. the arts or about uh, tenants' rights or this or that. And if one major mayoral candidate agrees, well, they're all going to agree. Mm-hmm. So they end up having, mm-hmm. like, I think they seriously had something like 50 debates. So many, yeah. Uh, and one of them, Morgan Baskin, actually got to be in, and she yeah. held Doug Ford's feet to the fire she Mm. was 18 years old Mm. and held his feet to the fire Mm. and uh she became verified on twitter Mm. that was an example of the sort of person who was like really toronto twitter famous yeah the other thing that's interesting about you know 2010 to let's say 2012 toronto twitter which was a whole era is that it was kind of our own more provincial version of of the resistance oh yeah because rob ford was just this again in our own much smaller kind of meeker way it was this just daily onslaught of news our own like micro trump era you know and rob ford was somebody who highlighted this divide in toronto between Mm -hmm. you know the suburbs and the downtown the haves and the have not Mm -hmm. the thing is similar to the american i mean in a way like it was the haves and have nots but very much like the american resistance how this expressed itself was actually just in like raw cultural terms because you know no political culture these days is really mature enough to have an actual conversation about you know material maldistribution you know (laughs) like the ford era but would you believe it did not become an occasion for toronto to think about well hey uh people that live outside the downtown core actually do have like much poorer access to public infrastructure and there's like you know, decades of chronic underinvestment, you know, actually the downtown core, which used to be where more of the poorer neighborhoods were concentrated, is actually now where like almost all the rich neighborhoods are concentrated down there, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't become that. It became like a classic dumb liberal conservative divide where it's like, hey, there's the enlightened downtown people, mm-hmm. you know, who are patrons of the arts, you know, and they ride bicycles. And then there's the gas guzzling, you know, SUV driving, Tim Hortons going rubes that live in the suburbs. And they're not even really part of the city anyway. Like that was kind of the, yeah. that's how the thing expressed itself. And they keep voting against their own interests. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in that way, it was very much like sort of the, uh, you know, America, the dumber features of the the like hashtag resistance but yeah it revolved around these personalities that were big on Twitter, and twitter was just getting like really big then mm-hmm. you know it had kind of twitter 1.0 and this was i would say what twitter 1.5 yeah, like yeah and this is also when they were starting to like verify accounts that weren't just like professional athletes and a-listers and stuff i remember the first time i ever saw a fake account a parody account yeah 
it was so novel. So the the guy that it was was a I think he's now a Hamilton based journalist named mm-hmm. Joey Coleman, who we knew a little bit back in the day because he was at the varsity. Well, he a, he didn't work there. But he, he didn't work. He, he was would, around. He would stop by. It was someone we knew. Yeah. And somebody created a fake Joey Coleman account. Yeah. And this was such big news that the Toronto Star actually interviewed him for an article. Right. Right. The idea of oh a, a fake parody account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another funny indirect connection to the Trump era there because it was that thing like before verification that led people to call their handles like real, you know, like real Luke Savage or whatever, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. of course is how the current president of the United States' <laughs> handle that works. That rules that his, his handle is still real Donald Trump. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> we were talking about that particular like downtown Toronto aesthetic, and I feel like, you know, maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but I really feel like it was defined in the Ford era like that bike riding, brunch eating. It's like middle class identity politics. And it was yeah. it was forged in the in the Ford era. Yeah. Right? Because when Rob Ford, this vulgarian from Etobicoke, mm. came downtown and was wreaking havoc, there needed to be, as you say, this this downtown identity politics to counteract this yeah. this invading force. And mm. it was all it was like we downtown people, we go to word on the street. Yeah, right, 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 right. I don't know. What else do we do? Mm -hmm. And again, similar to the basic mainstream American political dynamic where, you know, there's just kind of this resentment where like each side just kind of defines itself in opposition to the other. So it's like if one side likes something, the other side doesn't like it and Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And you get just like these ridiculous binaries that don't really make any sense now fuck now i sound like a centrist but but i'll mm-hmm. explain what i mean so there's the kind of more liberalish like metropolitan side of the of you know 2010 toronto that we just described but you know that's not to say that the ford project i mean the ford project was just that but for the right you know it was just like you know dumb suburban you know identity politics it's not not to say that there was there weren't class dynamics that enabled rob ford but I mean, he, you know, he was not some kind of like populist class warrior or whatever. Like, you know, he himself obviously was was very rich and it was just like a, a different kind of rich person than the kind of person you have downtown. And so the way that the kind of Metropolitan Corps responded to this was by asserting itself kind of purely in opposition to this other thing that it, it just saw as like a rival cultural block. Mm. Like similar to the American resistance, like, it was actually very like apolitical. Like it was just politics as kind of pure seething cultural resentment. It was it was so dumb. And guess how it ended? Uh, and I hope the American resistance doesn't end this way. But I mean, one of the things we've seen again and again, something that I've written about in relation to both Canadian and American politics is often when you have very disruptive right wing governance, actually what people crave is not the flip side, you know, populist left wing governance, the kind of you know, turn things around and and kind of pursues the kinds of transformative objectives that the right pursues, although in a positive direction, you don't get that. Instead, you get a hunger for kind of stability and normalcy. And so who became mayor after Rob Ford? The current mayor of Toronto, who uh, is himself the former leader of the same political party that the Ford family remembers of. Doug Ford Sr. was a backbencher in it, the Ontario PC party, that is. And now Doug Ford himself is the leader. The leader of it. And, you know, John Tory actually gave money to both of the Fords in 2010. But again, he's the right kind of rich person, you know, rich conservative. You know, he's not repugnant in the way that Rob Ford was because he's, you know, the kind of guy that they might see eating out at the same restaurants they 
do or whatever, you know? Well, I'll just tell you that during the Rob Ford era, we spent so much time in Toronto. It seems like every conversation that we would have in Toronto was about who are we as a city? I thought we were a progressive city, a multicultural city, a city that welcomed diversity and our differences. And this mayor has brought out a dark side. And and how can we deal with that? How can we address that? And how can we bridge the divides that are clearly so huge in this city? And then thankfully, we don't have those conversations That's great. anymore. The solution, it turns out, was, was extremely bland center-right governance. And, and thank yeah. God, because my conversations in this city are so much more pleasant these days. <laughs> The clear front runner. So start with the uh, shoulder in a little. My name is Gary Hart, and I'm running for president. I want you to think about the opportunity that we have right here, right now. I've never known a guy more talented at untangling politics so that anyone can understand. It is a gift, and he wants to share that. And all anybody wants is for him to take a stupid photo. He will never understand that. Gary Hart is the man to beat in 88. If we hold ourselves to those highest standards, then the voters cannot do otherwise. Senator, I want to ask you some questions about the woman at your townhouse. Can you tell us how you know her? You can't be serious. No one is staying in my home. There's no need for that. Uh, I, I am serious, sir. So as we think on, you know, that famous scene of pancakes being made, this week's movie was yet another in the vein of, uh, you know, how the sausage is made, uh, the, you know, the proverbial, uh, I can you just know, imagine, politics sausage. I can just imagine Matilda herself feeding <laughs> Gary Hart into the meat grinder. <laughs> So, um, you know, this is one of those movies that Will suggested and I, you know, my initial reaction was kind of like with a, a hint of do we have to. And let me tell you, for both of us, as is always the case, the did, do we have to or, or did we have to 20 minutes in, we're just like, we are such pain pigs. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Because we pick these movies and 20 yeah. minutes and we've got every the thesis is there. <laughs> And there's not a lot of depth to these things. The thesis is the thesis. And beyond that, there's not too much to get into. Like, we could have just stopped watching this after 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. We could have fast-forwarded it. You know, we could have watched three scenes and got the same thing. And could have just pretended that we saw it. But no, we are actually committed to our listeners. If you are an OG Michael and Us fan, you know that one of our favorite kinds of movies, in fact, we've even given one episode this title. It's a phrase we've said... More times than I can count. This is one of those politics, what a concept movies. It's one of the two or three core Michael and us movie and you know narrative archetypes. And this is another one of those. So strap yourselves in. The movie is called The Front Runner from 2017, directed by the great Jason Reitman, who gave you Thank You for Smoking, among other fine films. And it stars... <laughs> did we, we did Thank You for Smoking. We did right, Thank right, You okay, for Smoking, yeah. Yeah. Which is another one of the... Uh, part of the other... One of the other great Michael and us archetypes, which is the equal opportunity offender. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this will all be in the forthcoming Michael and us The volume, book. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it stars Hugh Jackman as Gary Hart, a uh, prospective Democrat nominee in 1984 and 1988, who was brought down in a sex scandal, which led to the nomination of Michael Dukakis and the rest was history. This is a movie that hopes to show us the moment when politics went wrong, 
the moment when sensation began to infect our sober-minded news media, when political candidates, honorable men, were not even allowed privacy because you, what is the difference between a politician and a celebrity? So if Will hadn't told me this movie came out in 2017, I could have easily concluded it came out in the 90s. You know, it looks and feels like another film we watched for the show, Primary Colors with John Travolta. The complaints that it's making, I suppose, in, in some oblique ways are you know, post-2016 complaints, right? About, you know, the press and things. But I feel like the basic complaint of the movie, which is the press took a wrong turn and became salacious and our politics are poor yeah. for it. That's been around for ages. And so this movie is actually very difficult to place, which is actually, which is one of the reasons why it's so perfect for a Michael and Us treatment. It's a movie which, like all of these politics, what a concept movies, is so broad that it could really be from any time. Well, uh, it's amazing that it came out in 2017 after Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders because it feels like an end of history movie. Yeah. Like Primary Colors or any of these Clinton era yeah. politics movies. It's so interested in these scenes of either journalists or campaign apparatchiks behind the scenes talking about the optics. Mm. You know, it's a movie that pulls the curtain back and says, well, you know, we all know it's fake, but you, the audience, we're, we're letting you in on this. And it comes after this momentous 2016 election where two different candidates sort of threw a wrench into the operation. Yeah, so it's very much in the tradition of, I, I think really two, I think there's really two kind of big influences here. So one is D.A. Pennebaker's The War Room, which mm -hmm. is something we've talked about. I think we did an episode on that one. So this kind of boys on the bus on screen, like we're going to show you, we're going to peel back the curtain. We're going to show you the gurus that make things happen. You know, we're going to actually focus less on the candidate and more on this breaking the fourth wall of politics to show you all the kind of ingenious processes that undergird this elegantly crafted spectacle you see on TV. So uh, I was thinking about the scene in the war room, which could have been a scene from this movie where George Stephanopoulos is, you know, he's doing the spin room after the debate and he's just... He's ducking his head into multiple... Uh, Bush Bush was weak. Yeah, Bush yeah. was weak. And what he just, was it he said? He's something like that. Yeah, I yeah. thought Bush sounded really flat. You know, yeah. something like that. And he's just saying that the same dumb talking point that's tire, entirely bullshit and optics into just different journalists' ears, hoping that that talking point will get inserted into the discord. Of course, now he just tweeted. But you watching that, right, you're supposed to go, wow, so this is how it's done. This is the kind of dark arts, the jujitsu that happens behind the scenes. So that's one influence. The other influence, and I hate to bring this up again because I really do sound like a broken record, is the West Wing. Just endless scenes of process-oriented dialogue. Uh, I mean, there's three kinds of scenes in this movie, right? There's like three or four scenes where anything happens. You know, so there's like the narrative scenes. Mm -hmm. Then there's the family drama scenes. Because this movie, like all these movies, is too broad to really have a thesis, so it also has to be kind of like something you could take your parents to or whatever it's and, just like a family drama and it also wants to have it both ways right or it yeah. wants plausible deniability so it's mostly about you know i can't believe the press invaded this honorable man's private life but it also has to have an element of oh well you know gary hart he did do something bad w yeah. women have a hard time look at the effect yeah. that this had on the women in uh -huh. his life but i mean it's heart really isn't in that it's not even really owning that but then yeah and then so those are the those are two kinds and then the third kind which i would say 
comprises much of the movie is just either shots of journalists or campaign apparatchiks making the sausage. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, what was that scene? We are the, the people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Miami Herald uh, editorial board or in their newsroom or whatever it is like early in the movie where, you know, there's just a guy, grizzled veteran of, of you know, the, the front lines of the news where he's, uh, where he's you know, he's, re- he's reading them the news and they're talking about it. And one of the news points is like, you know, well, uh, folks, uh, you know, uh, MGM is suing Disney or something. I've seen it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's delivered in this kind of world weary, like, well, here we go again, folks. So most of the movies, either journalists or political operatives doing that. Um, and then I guess there's kind of an- a, another thing that's, but it's basically part of the same type of scene where it's just news footage, like actual news footage from the time kind of intercut into the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you see cable news talking ads from the time, you see Johnny Carson, yeah, you uh, know. Ted Koppel. Sure, yeah. yeah. So there, so it's, it's, all, it's all that. So this is one of those movies that's like, if you're into seeing the politics stuff, you're in luck because it's got it. You, you got all the politics stuff. It's, it's. I mean, I can't believe this. This is the kind of thing that even even though 2017 is only three three years ago, that this got a theatrical release. I mean, it bombed, right? Yes. But it uh, and let's get into how much it bombed in a bit. But that it even got a theatrical release is amazing to me. That seems like so 2017. Now this would be one of those like Netflix originals, mm-hmm. and it would kind of work in that format, you know, because it would be more of just like a here's a non pretentious mid. Well, maybe that's giving you too much credit, but 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 it's like here's a middle brow thing that you can watch without thinking too much after your eight hour work day while you're kind of scrolling through Twitter or whatever. There are, there are two kinds of lazy entertainment to throw on yeah. when you're trying this to is... fall asleep. There's the upscale one and the downscale one. Yeah, it's like one. Th- this is the thinking person storage wars Mm -hmm. to your point about aaron sorkin the conflicted conscience of the movie is this journalist character who's Mm -hmm. you know on the bus and he's at a a breakfast diner with gary hart and the last question he wants to ask is about rumors of an affair and so he asks about the affairs and gary hart launches into this sorkin-esque rhetoric you know about this is beneath you sir have you no dignity sir (laughs) um I'm not having fun asking about this, in case you're wondering. I wasn't. Well, look, well, look, I just... anybody care? How, how was it relevant? Well, some Senator. people feel like it's hard no, to know you why, and they're trying to help people. So, who are these people everyone keeps telling me okay, about? Fine. Because, Ma- no. Maybe some of us. We so, reporters? Some of us, yes. Oh, some of you who were still in high school when I was running McGovern's campaign. AJ, either ask something else. No, it's not my fault you're just arriving at the party, AJ. Well, okay, fine. So around that time you told Gilshi he believed in reform marriage. What did that mean? Oh, for crying out loud. I, I was young and tired and living across the country from my wife, and I made a stupid joke. You know, this right here is why people don't want to be in public life, because someone will dredge up something you said in a moment 15 years ago and act like it somehow encapsulates your life. Look, hey, look, no, I look, don't... I'm going to answer one more of these. I'm not going to sit here anymore. We've covered all the stuff that matters. Did, did you ask Reagan about his right. marriage? No, 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 listen. Did you ask Carter these questions? There have been rumors, particularly about... For God's sake, AJ, just ask whatever it is you came here to ask or whatever your editor told you to ask me. There's also a scene that Yeri Hart delivered, like, I think the last scene of the movie where he gives his farewell speech you know, his his good night and good luck speech yeah, at the yeah. end where, I mean, you know, maybe this is these are the actual words that Gary Hart said. I don't know. But th- it comes down to if we keep uh, shaming candidates like this in this disgusting way, well, good people won't run for office anymore. 
Which, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's too bad that Gary Hart didn't become president. I mean, imagine how different history would have been. Right. It's like, uh, it's like instead of him becoming president, it's like a few years later. I mean, the Democrats lost the 88 election, um, which who knows, Gary Hart could easily have lost it anyway. But then it's like a few years later, a guy from the Atari Democrats who actually mentioned in the film, he just became president. It's like a, a different scandal plagued guy uh, from the same ideological faction of the Democrats became president instead. So wow. what do we see of Gary Hart in this movie? Well, not a lot. We see him uh, arguing about communism at the beginning. Yeah, he's not in favor of it. Well, he has like he has like a sort of late Cold War lib take on the Soviet Union, which is just like. You know, hey, Reagan doesn't get credit. You know, communism doesn't work economically. So, hey, they beat themselves. And my actual favorite scene of the movie is he's already been caught. The journalists have snuck up on him as he's sneaking out of his mistress's house. And so this is brewing. And then the next day, he's at a meeting with his campaign staff. And the campaign staff want to know the truth about this story that's about to break. And he's like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not telling you the truth because this is beneath me. This is beneath you. This is beneath the whole process. So we're going to go on to the issues that matter. And then he says, and I, I loved the line so much I wrote it down. He said, it's not just the specter of a trade war I'm worried about. It's our loss of influence globally. And then the scene cuts right after that. And so you brought up that great moment in The Wolf of Wall Street in relation to this scene, right? Where where Jordan Balfour, you know, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he's describing in very convoluted terms like this scheme they do. And then he, he goes, wait, wait, wait. He's like, this is, you don't care about this. The, the point is, was this legal? Absolutely not. So whatever. yeah, it's sort of like that. I mean, The Wolf of Wall Street is very honest about it. It's doing it, that in a self-aware way. But in this movie, it's it wants to have it both ways because the movie is suggesting, listen, all this sex stuff, that's not what's important. You know what's important Politics. Is, is, is the specter of a trade the, the, war. The ideas. And what are the and ideas? Our influence globally. Yeah. But then, we, of course, we don't linger on that because the movie also knows, folks, that's boring. You don't want to well, know it's about like, trade it's like, wars. It's like, hey, what do you want? This is a broad movie. We're not going to talk about actual politics. Yeah, so the movie... Like, let's be honest, <laughs> folks. You don't have the attention span or the knowledge yeah. to, to get into that stuff. You're smart enough to know that sex shouldn't be in politics. It, it's totally relevant, but you're not smart enough to know about this trade war. But also, here's an entire movie that's all about that. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. That's, that's thesis is, hey, we shouldn't be paying attention to this stuff. I have a theory that this movie is really about Bill Clinton and not about Gary Hart. Interesting. Um, because I think I think it's displaced energy, really. You know, when you talk to a centrist lib, what are they going to say is when the media went to hell? What are they going to say? Who are they going to say was the real, like, unfairly persecuted Democrat politician? Are they going to say Gary Hart, an also-ran guy from 1988 who nobody remembers? Or are they going to talk about Bill Clinton, the guy who got impeached for a frickin' blowjob, yeah. which they're so fond of saying, <laughs> even though that's not actually why he was impeached. <laughs> but the thing is, it's actually still too touchy to make a movie about Bill Clinton. Like, could you imagine actually making a movie about the Bill Clinton Monica Lewinsky scandal that is in Bill Clinton's favor. Like, wow, you couldn't do it. You, you yeah. couldn't do it. And by the way, this movie, The Front Runner, came out exactly as Me Too was dropping. Mm-hmm. So it was just a movie that was just, you know, totally kind of out of step with the cultural moment when people were interrogating powerful men and mm-hmm. their sexual entitlement. And so th- this movie really flopped, correct? Let me uh, pull up the pull up the numbers. We're just waiting for our computer screens here in the the Gore Lieberman studios to show us. Yeah, well, obviously this was a Oscar hopeful. It made three point two million dollars in North America. I do remember it was a gala presentation at the Toronto International Film Festival. 
I love the Toronto International Film Festival. There's so much wonderful stuff there. Uh, so many great experiences I've had. But if you were to define like what is the TIFF gala aesthetic, it's this. Mm-hmm. You know, a middle of the middle of the middle brow mm-hmm. movie about about politics with uh, one or two gigantic stars in it. Like what what's really going on is Toronto gets to be like. Toronto welcomes Hugh Jackman for like the quintessential take on uh, uh, Chex Notes. Uh, oh, uh, Gary Hart, uh, sure, woo! And so you know <laughs> the, the board of directors of CIBC or TD Bank all block by their tickets, mm-hmm. and they're in the balcony at Roy Thompson Hall, and, 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 and they and, all get to see Hugh Jackman. Yeah, and life. and you know just before Hugh Jackman gets up on stage, you know to talk about his Gary Hart movie, they do the land acknowledgement, right? For, you know, which is another. I mean, this is a digression, but that's another thing about TIFF is like right before. Well, it's like that in any like publicly funded uh-huh. event in Toronto. Well, it's like a really, a really good like progressive Canadian tradition is doing a land acknowledgement for the indigenous peoples that have been displaced on whose land we're meeting is the phrase that usually comes up. But then the thing about TIFF or any kind of event like that, before and after you're just bombarded with like, you know, banks and oil companies and whatever else who were, and now cannabis, you know, startups and whatever. Well, also the land- Kind of cheapens it. The land acknowledgement always says, you know, thank you for allowing us to use the land. Mm -hmm. I I do think it's good that there's a land acknowledgement, but I also think if they're allowing them to use the land, what if they said, okay, we want the land back? Well, then, then are they going to give it back? But, you know, putting that aside for a moment, the other reason why this movie is so part of the TIFF gala aesthetic is it, it's a movie that's frankly not good enough to be at either the Venice Film Festival or the New York Film Festival. So, of course, it has its world premiere on the TIFF red carpet. I bet more people saw this at Roy Thompson Hall than saw it in its entire wide theatrical release. <laughs> Did you see how much? So you see how much money it made? It was three million dollars in North America. Three point two. How much did it cost? I don't know how much it cost, but um, I bet it. Uh, I, I bet it cost a pretty penny. But three point. Do you have three point two million dollars? No, that sounds like a king's right. Let, let's be clear though. This movie did not cost two million dollars to make. I, I imagine. I imagine that his salary alone, uh, Hugh Jackman's, was. More than three point two million dollars. Oh, by the way, I love how jacked Hugh Jackman. Oh yeah, so I wanted I want to get into this just a little bit of like trivia for this. So when did Logan come out? Twenty. I think about the same year as this. Yeah, right. So so Hugh Jackman was bigger in Logan than he was in like Wolverine or you know uh, when did the first X Men movie come out? Two thousand. Yeah, so way back, right? So Hugh Jackman is a man in his fifties, right? And in this movie, there's a scene where, so the scene with Will talked about with the, where he's talking about the trade war and, you know, loss of standing and stuff. He's wearing like a long sleeve shirt with a sweater over it. And let me tell you, Hugh Jackman's shoulders look absolute fire in this, like, despite like multiple layers. And he is a man of like, he's in his fifties, right? I can't really conjure an image of Gary Hart in my head. He was Mm. before my time, but I guarantee he didn't look like this. No U.S. politician apart from Arnold Schwarzenegger has ever looked like (laughs) this, this jacked, especially at that age. I think it's unfair to cast Hugh Jackman in this role because it stacks the deck in Gary Hart's favor just too much. (laughs) You had a point you raised uh, about how hypocritical it is for this generation of politicians to complain about the treatment that Gary Hart got. You know, there's a bit to unpack here. It's a somewhat contrarian take. And I, I would just say that, you know, kind of beneath our ironic deconstruction of, you know, yet another just absolute forgettable trifle of a movie. I do. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the reasons we're so hard on a lot of these movies is because 
the thesis, such as it is, is often just like such a truism that it's not worth, like as Will said at the beginning of the episode, this is one of those things you don't, you could watch 20 minutes of this movie and you would get the same takeaway. Like it, it elucidates nothing, right? We all agree, or I hope we all agree that, um, you know, insofar as it's possible, there should be a firewall between like a politician's record and like stuff that has nothing to do with that, right? Like the kind of tabloid journalism that I think is even more common maybe in the UK than it is in the United States where it's like, you know, this person's stepsister, we went through their taxes and there's something that an expert says might be a little dodgy. Mm -hmm. Like clearly that's bullshit. You know, sure, it's a problem that most people intuitively understand that that cheapens everything, Mm -hmm. uh, but also that we kind of can't look away. So Mm -hmm. sure. But I do think that there's also, in this particular concern, the way it comes up so often in these big budget movies, one of the things it's speaking to is actually the kind of, a particular kind of elite frustration. And, you know, one that is very common in a political class that, on the one hand, cherishes spectacle and rides it almost entirely. You know, whole political brands built on, like, inviting the press to come watch the family picnic and doing interviews with completely non-political magazines that are basically just like the husband and wife sit down to dish about their favorite movies and like, <laughs> you know, and their, their courtship, you know, whatever right. else it is. Just stuff that is, you know, it is salacious and it's got nothing to do with politics, but they're loving it and they're building an entire brand off it. They are actually leaning into the fact that because of the way media culture works now um, and now social media as well, they are celebrities. I mean, again, don't want to sound like a broken record, but like Justin Trudeau, that is like, of the Justin Trudeau phenomenon right there. And like, if we could peel back the curtains and see what he and his staff are talking about, a lot of it is just, it is literally at that level. Like during the election, he invited the press to like, he was going to do a presser and then he showed up for the presser by paddling a canoe up to the bank and then not getting out of it, but just actually paddling the canoe round and round in circles so that they'd take lots of pictures and it would be on social media. So again, I'll just reiterate, I don't think the press has like an unrestricted right to go into people's personal lives and things like that. That's not something I I approve of. Again, I agree with, you know, the thesis of this movie such as it is. However, I do think it's a little rich when people who build their entire, who treat themselves as brands to then complain, well, when, when this doesn't go our way, the press is being intrusive, right? It's like you've invited the press in and what your real complaint is not that this is ruining your private life uh at least not here the complaint is that you're losing control of like the management of your brand and it's not going the way you you know you want it to the actual problem here doesn't just have to do with the press it has to do with uh, you know, the commodification of political personalities. Um, and the press is is far from the only group guilty. The political class, broadly speaking, is extremely guilty of this. The problem is, you know, turning everything to a spectacle and having that be politics. I suppose I agree with your point that there should be a firewall between relevant and irrelevant things in a politician's life. But if a nude picture of Bill Clinton leaked, I would look at it. The one thing I asked was that you don't embarrass me. We can't hide from this. The cameras go everywhere. It's up to us to hold these guys accountable. Just because some other paper used gossip as front page news, I mean, that doesn't mean we have to. It does. It does now. He is a man with power, and that takes certain responsibility. We need to say something. It's nobody's business. None of it is. Okay, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about how you get through today.
This campaign is about the future, not rumors, not sleaze, and I care about the sanctity of this process, whether you do or do not. So I want to move on from the film a bit. Um, and notice, by the way, that we didn't really talk about the plot at all, because the plot is like three things happen. How this movie filled out two hours is beyond me. Well, I filled it out very, very long. Gar Gary Hart is the is the front runner, um, as per the title of the movie. Uh, there, Gary Hart, a press finds that he's having an affair, and then he has to deal with the affair, and he drops out. That's it was just movie. so, so drab. Too. Really boring. Honestly, I would have killed to be watching Thank You for Smoking while watching <laughs> yeah. this, because that movie, that movie had a little zest Basically in Fellini, compared yeah. to this. Um, at least it had character. Same with, same with anything Aaron Sorkin does. Oh, at least it's, oh my god, it's Aaron like Sorkin. The, news, the newsroom is reactionary crap, it's impossible to watch. But at least it's like impossible to watch with a personality. Aaron know? Sorkin gives you snappy patter <laughs> at the very least. I, I would have killed for that watching this. Yeah, and you know, Aaron Sorkin doesn't doesn't give you two snippets about, ooh, uh, I'm concerned about the trade war is going to hurt our standing. He gives you 15 minutes where they're talking about, you know, recess appointments, filibusters, <laughs> whatever else. Um you know the, the the polls down ballot, whatever else. Anyway, I want to move on from the uh, the movie a bit. Um, but I do think another thing we haven't touched on a wider kind of concern that it's tapping into. You know, anytime, particularly post twenty sixteen, you have you know these kind of moral panics about the press. Uh, you have kind of anxiety about the state of the media, um, and you have uh, and this goes back before twenty sixteen this concern about how, you know, the press has become really polarized. You know, we talked about this back in the episode on the film Best of Enemies, right? Mm. Where it was kind of pining for this, um, this era where there were just a handful of, of networks. And, uh, and it was saying, you know, the Gore, Vidal, William F. Buckley debates, that presaged what the U.S. media is now and what cable TV specifically is now, where every network is aligned with one of the two major political parties basically or at very least every network just every show every panel is like a bunch of spin doctors on one side a bunch of spin doctors on the other side and so this is a very like john stewart on crossfire type of he you know he really summed up this type of concern all the way back in what was that 2004, 2004. right uh, we should do a whole episode we just should. on that uh, i haven't watched it for a long time but, but so um, I've been reading a really good book by Matt Taibbi, his latest book. You, you know, you can get it in print, but um, also serialized on Substack. So if people want to read it, you know, online kind of in serialized fashion, they can do that. It's called Hate Inc. And, you know, it's a really interesting book. I've got it right here. And, you know, the cover and the title. So the, the title, full title, Hate Inc., Why Today's Media Makes Us Despise One Another. And uh, half the cover is blue and it's got Rachel Maddow. The other half of the cover is red. And it's got Sean Hannity. So if you didn't know the writer um, and you didn't bother to read the book, I mean, this looks very much like one of those books. It's making kind of for the umpteenth time this kind of point about, you know, the media divides people. You know, the media should be a place where we can do enlightened discourse and everyone can come together and yeah, blah, 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 blah. But this is not that kind of book. Instead, you know, Taibbi set out to kind of update the Chomsky-Herman thesis developed in Manufacturing Consent, which he does do a bit, but then he actually found that he had so much to say about the state of the media, it becomes a lot bigger than that. But one of the things that I think he is so good at in this book is showing how absolutely everything the media does that you hate is uh, basically a, a business decision. And this was the thing that Chomsky and Herman really looked at is like, beneath all the layers of ideology and kind of opinion management and stuff, this is just a business. And the business model actually goes most of the way to explaining what's wrong with the media. In their book, they, they were talking a lot about how the US media 
um, framed the Vietnam War, and they talked a lot about how in democratic societies you don't you don't have like the thought control that uh, that is characteristic of an authoritarian society, like where there's you know one radio station that's it's a single party state and they tell you what the party line is and you you believe it or whatever. What happens in a democratic society um, is actually in some ways more insidious than that. It's the careful management of the acceptable span of, of like respectable opinion. So on Vietnam, for example, uh, what that meant was that you have the two, the two camps and the camps are the doves and the hawks. The hawks say in, you know, foghorn, leghorn voice, uh, you know, uh, well, God damn it, we got to stick it out. We got to stay in there. We got to do, do We Send more troops, drop the bomb, do whatever it takes. And then the doves, they oppose the war, but they don't oppose the war on moral grounds. They basically say, look, we've done everything we can, you know, but but actually our objectives are too benighted mm-hmm. and they can't, you know, the world is not ready for our idealism. And that's why we got to bring the troops home, you know, <laughs> cue the CCR song or whatever. Uh-huh. And so, you know, that's the basic framework. It applies to innumerable other things. But Taibi kind of updates this, and he does it for, you know, for a couple of reasons. Uh, there were some pretty big developments in the, you know, business model of, of the mainstream media um, or the different business models that play in the mainstream media since uh, manufacturing consent came out. And one of the big ones was the rise of kind of conservative talk radio and then later Roger Ailes launching Fox News. The emergence of kind of this new beast, you know, the extremely partisan media outlet that everyone kind of knows is lying, but it's its basic premise is like, we're the only ones telling the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the birth of this kind of modern, like, cable news truthiness, which, of course, then produced kind of the liberal version in something like MSNBC and, and more, you know, spread more widely through the media ecosystem where, you know, every show there's just a lib and a conservative and they're just, they're just going at each other and, not, you know, nothing of value gets discussed. But because Taibi's starting point is... What is the business model and why does it operate this way? His thesis is a really good kind of bomb against nostalgia for, for the era where like everybody got their news from Dan Rather, right? Mm-hmm. So th- that kind of era that everyone pines for, right? And I think that the movie we watched this week is actually kind of indirectly pining for. Like, you know, re- remember the press before when it was enlightened, you know, when it was just people we could trust Walter Cronkite well, came yeah. on and told you Kennedy had yeah. died, and we all felt it. You know, before the media became salacious, before it became partisan, that kind of thing. But one thing a lot of people don't realize is that that kind of neutral news voice actually just came out of an earlier uh, an earlier business model. It was a business decision. Hmm. And that was because uh, newspapers and TV networks as well, you know, the business model was capture the biggest audience you can. And if you're going to do that, it makes sense to have a voice that is basically as kind of purely factual and dispassionate as possible, because that's how you get the biggest market mm-hmm. share. There's even little things in, in that kind of old news format, kind of things that seem trivial that, that, that really speak to that. So I can't remember which famous news program used to begin with Good Morning, Everyone right mm-hmm. things like that that's a little aside in the book which i which i thought was uh, was was quite interesting but so that neutral news voice was a business decision and uh, for the reasons that chomsky and herman point out in manufacturing consent you know it actually had lots of its own problems you know in in, in many ways it kind of carefully managed opinion because it, it couldn't actually it couldn't actually really incorporate strong ideological positions because that would interfere with the business model. So you can't have Noam Chomsky, the most famous dissident um, in the world, the most cited thing besides Shakespeare in the Bible. Mm -hmm. You can't have him on TV. He's never going to be on TV. Instead, you're going to have like a lib who's saying we should bring the troops home, but doesn't 
actually oppose the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. right? But so with the rise of kind of the, with the Roger Ailesization of, of, of the U.S. media, um, what you have is just a new business model. And what they figure out is you can rile up one section of the population, you can make them really, really mad, and cultural resentment is its own kind of business model. You can kind of monetize that. And it's, of course, it's not to say that people shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't hate that. I mean, anyone who watched the debate, uh, which I'm so happy we got this far in the episode without talking about this, but um, anyone watched the debate the other night and they saw how CNN moderated that thing. Or if, turn, turn, I know most of our listeners probably don't watch cable news on the regular, which is a very good thing. But I mean, if you've watched even 10 minutes of it in the last few months, I mean, good God, it is awful. My colleague Bronco, who's been on the show before, had to watch a ton of uh, MSNBC. Like, he had to watch months of MSNBC coverage of the primaries uh, for an In These Times feature he wrote a few months ago. And, I mean, his mood the two weeks he was doing that, like, it, it, like, brought him down. It is terrifying to think that this is what, like, some of our parents and grandparents is where they're getting their news and their political opinions from. Anyway, which is all to say... People are right to hate this, but they're also wrong, I think, to kind of idealize what came uh, before it. The underlying problem here, and this in some ways mirrored uh, the point I made about politics um, a few minutes ago, you know, politics is a spectacle, and that's kind of what this movie is missing. Like, that's the real problem, not a salacious press. The problem is that politics are becoming a spectacle. And you could make a very similar point about the media, which is, you know, the problem isn't that the media used to be neutral and now it's partisan. The problem is that uh, the media is predominantly about market forces, and that is not actually very conducive to enlightened discourse in a democratic society. Now watch this drive. Well, 